the school is out. Which means it's time for Hi Kids. Hello and welcome. This is Hi Kids for Kids by Kids. My name is Lexi Abramson and I'm 11 years old. Coming up on Hi Kids today, I'll be talking to Rene Posnick. Did I get that right? Or no? Posnick? Very, very good. Okay, thank you. I'm not great at certain But anyway, <laughs> and Arlene Schur from the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre. Also on the show, I'll have a Chai Kids riddle to challenge your thinking. Here are the details if you have any questions for my guest, or if you want to answer the riddle, or if you just want to say hi. The SMS number is 34519, and it's charged 1 Rand 50 cents. You can send me a WhatsApp on 062-148-2374, and please sign your name. Get ready for an interesting show in Chai Kids today, right after this. You're listening to Hi Kids on 101.9 Hi FM. That song was Part of Your World from The Little Mermaid. This is Hi Kids for Kids by Kids. My name is Lexi Abramson and I'm 11 years old. We are starting a cool new feature on the Hi Kids show where we bring in our special listeners and find out a bit more about you. If you want to be our next special guest, you can send an email at matt.hifm.com. That's Matt at HiFM.com. <laughs> and now, are you ready for the riddle? Here it is. I have rivers, but don't have water. I have dense forests, but no trees and animals. I have cities, but no people live in my, those cities. What am I? If you know the answer, then send me an SMS on 34519 or WhatsApp us on 062 1482374 with your name and answer and you could win a prize from Kid and Co and of course who doesn't want that if you're the first one to get the right answer remember you have to give others a chance to win if you have won on Ohio FM in the last 90 days I know it's a really long time you can still enter the riddle but you won't be able to win a prize today I have Rene Posniak am I right? you're right <laughs> And Arlene Scherf from the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre in studio with me today. If you have any questions for them, you can send an SMS to 34519 or WhatsApp us on 062-148-2374. Hey guys. Hi. Hi. <laughs> How are you today? Good. How are you, Lexi? <laughs> Good, thanks. Should we jump straight into your questions? Let's do that. All right. You have come to tell us about the Holocaust and Genocide Centre. Can you explain the difference between Holocaust and genocide and what do they mean? Okay, so when we're referring to a genocide, we're referring to the systematic planned murder of a specific group. The group would be targeted according to their race, their religion, their ethnicity. So it's a specific planned murder of a group. When we're referring to the Holocaust, we're referring to the six million Jews that were murdered um, in Europe during um, the period of 1933 to 1945. So the Holocaust was actually a genocide. But when we're referring to the Holocaust, it means the specific murder of the six million Jewish people. And how do you explain the Holocaust to children without overwhelming them? And what age do you tell children about this? So I'll give that a bash. The Holocaust, <laughs> um, the story of the Holocaust is, can be layered to be uh, different levels of intensity and different levels of of um, of depth. So with children, uh, I think if you look in the Jewish day schools, you'll see that in the primary school they do talk about the Holocaust. 
I think that uh, I'm not sure exactly what age they start, but it's pretty young. And I think it's just to create an awareness and a consciousness that there was an event that targeted Jews that we are very sad about. Um, and they might tell stories of children. But as you go through the grades and you get to high school, I think the official age of doing the Holocaust formally is in grade 11. 11? Grade 9. Grade 9, oh, nine. Uh, in, in the history component. Yeah. Uh, and, and then gra- from a Jewish perspective, in the Jewish studies, uh, it's done in, in about grade 11. And um, there are different things that you can you can teach so the story is the story, whether you tell it to a little child or you tell it to uh, somebody in high school. But the lessons that you're going to extract, the kind of consciousness that you're going to create about what happened. To tell the story of Anne Frank, for example. I'm reading her book, actually, right now. Wonderful. Uh, It's a a wonderful, wonderful book to read and a wonderful experience to read about. She really did sensitize the world to what the Holocaust looked like through the eyes of a child. But that doesn't mean to say that an adult can't read the book as well. I think that you'll take different things from it. Uh, We try very hard not to overwhelm children with big, with graphic um, pictures and statistics. It's not relevant. It's just to create the consciousness as we get older. So we start looking at the lessons that you can extract. Mm. And were non-Jews, Jewish people murdered during World War Two by the Nazis? So certainly there were um, non-Jews that were murdered as well. The Nazis targeted specific groups. They had specific groups of people that they had targeted during that period. So amongst those people were the Roma and the Sinti. And um, it is estimated that between um, 2,000 to half a million were murdered at that time. Not exact figures available for that. Homosexual people were targeted, and it's estimated 15,000 people, 15,000 homosexuals were murdered. Disabled, there was a program called the Euthanasia Program, where anyone that was born with a physical or mental handicap was targeted, and 300,000 disabled people were murdered. Slavs, referring to Polish Christians, 3 million of those people were murdered. Jehovah's Witnesses were targeted, and there were a few hundred of those people that were murdered. Um, black people or people of mixed marriages were also targeted. Um, again, they had more of a policy of sterilizing the black people or the people from mixed marriages, but there were a few hundred that were murdered as well. And then there were Russian prisoners of war, at least two and a half million that were targeted then. But the genocide itself, the people that were targeted for murder were the Roman, the Sinti and the Jews. Mm. And can you explain the term final solution? So <clears throat> the final solution, uh, just in a, in a short uh, explanation, is the annihilation or the intention to annihilate every single Jewish man, woman, and child. Um, and that evolved. Um, people, initially it started with, uh, f- with, with the verbal anti-Semitism, and then there, and then it became physical anti-Semitism, culminating in probably what what is the most extreme example of anti-Semitism, and that is the final solution. Mm. <coughs> I keep saying. Mm. And how do the Germans? How did the Germans decide who was Jewish? So that's a very interesting question because the Nazi definition of a Jew was a racial one. And that was that if you had one Jewish grandparent, you were considered by Hitler to be a Jew. 
he really believed that you are what your blood is. So that if you had a, a Jewish grandparent, that meant that you had some Jewish blood in you, which made you Jewish. And there was no way of getting away from it as far as he was concerned. From a Jewish point of view, the definition of a Jew is a halakhic definition. It's a Jewish religious definition. And that is that you have to be born to a Jewish mother or convert to Judaism in the orthodox way. So the truth is that halakhically, many of the people that were targeted and considered to be Jews by Hitler, technically and halakhically, were not Jews. But also it was very difficult to differentiate who was a Jew, because Jews had been living, in, particularly in Germany and in a lot of other European countries, for thousands of years. And there was no way of... By looking at a person, being able to distinguish who was Jewish or not. So that was one of the reasons why they made the Jews wear the identifying yellow star that you so often see from that time. Because by looking at somebody, there was no ways that the Nazis could determine who was Jewish or not. And <clears throat> when was the first death camp established and how many were eventually built? Okay, so first, firstly they established concentration camps. Um, the first concentration camp was established in Germany in Dachau, and eventually there were 42,000 concentration camps. Initially those were established um, more as corrective facilities for anyone that opposed the Nazis, that, for anyone that was against the Nazis. Later they established the, uh, the killing centers so maybe you want to speak more about that. So, so the killing centre is what, what has commonly been known as a death camp. Today it's politically incorrect to use that term. We use the term a killing centre. There were six killing centres and they were all on Polish soil. None of them were on German soil, interestingly enough. Um, and that was, uh, there weren't only Jews in the killing centres. There were other people as well, but millions of Jews passed through their hands. Mm. <laughs> I keep saying that. I That's don't know okay. Why. Um, and do all Germans support Hitler's plan for the persecution of the Jews? So I would say not. Um, possibly the majority might have been bystanders, people that were too afraid to speak out against the Nazi re regime because anyone that did would have been severely punished. Um, there were also people that spoke out against what people were happening. There were people that hit Jews. There were people that assisted them. Um so I would say that not really. I would say the majority probably didn't support them, but eventually went along with it. And Hitler had – the Nazis had a very um, well-orchestrated propaganda campaign. So they managed to get a lot of people eventually to buy into this, their ideology and their belief system. The truth is that not all Germans were part of the Nazi party. So – I suppose if you, if you, not that we draw any, any distinct, any, um, connection between what happened in Germany and South Africa, but not every single white person was a racist necessarily in South Africa. And, um, who are the righteous among the, na the nations? So Yad Vashem has recognized people who were brave enough, who risked their lives to save Jews during this period. And there are over 26,000 people that are recognized as being righteous amongst the nations. And at Yad Vashem today, they've planted rows of trees. Each tree's got a, a, pla a placard at the bottom, um, which honors the person who is recognized as a righteous among the nation. There's also, like, I heard there was a movie called Zookeeper's Wife. Yes, yes. 
Yes, and the people that start in that the, the zookeeper and his wife are recognised as being righteous amongst the nations. Um, just to say, I think the criteria for becoming a righteous Gentile was that, first of all, you had to prove that you saved a Jewish life. Secondly, that your own life was being threatened by doing it. And thirdly, that you didn't do it for any gain. Nobody was paying you to do this. It's something that you did because you believed it was the right thing to do. And did the Jews try to fight against the Nazis? To what extent were their efforts successful? So that's, that's something that we, we put under the category of what we call resistance. So there definitely, definitely was Jewish resistance. I think that when you look, when you're in an environment like this where there's so little um, available to resist, that maybe you have to redefine resistance. We have, we definitely have examples of physical resistance. I suppose the Warsaw Ghetto uprising is probably the most well documented, um, but there were uprisings in many of the camps. Um, but we also have what we like to call spiritual resistance, where the Jews used what was available to them to not allow the Nazis to take away their sense of self, their sense of dignity, etc. And Education was forbidden in the in in the concentration camps and the ghettos, and yet it continued. Um, the Jews uh, sometimes to have a religious service, to light candles on a Shabbat, or to have a Pesach Seder was completely forbidden, and your life was in danger if you did it. And yet there are many examples where this was done. So resistance, although it needs, to, it's not taking a hand grenade and a gun necessarily. There were many, many examples of resistance. And I would just like to say one thing, and that is that if you look even at the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, there was no doubt, even to the people involved in it, that they were not going to win this. To go up with sticks and stones against the mighty Third Reich, they knew they weren't going to win. But I suppose if there was a um, an organization that studied the human spirit, that probably would, they would study the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising because these were people where most choice had been taken away from them. The only choice they really had was how they were going to choose to die. Jews also joined partisan groups. There were groups of partisans living in the forest that tried to fight against the Nazis. So there were Jewish partisan groups as well as non-Jewish partisan groups, and many Jews did fight with the partisans as well. What is partisan? Um, just like people that are listening know what partisan so so a partisan was uh, uh, I think the most common ones were probably the Russians. They were fighting against uh, the Germans and they fought from forests they 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 took um, refuge in forests and they attacked they tried to derail. The war process. They had some guns and some arms. They would blow up bridges, for example. They were bringing supplies. They would print pamphlets explaining to people what was going on. So they fought uh, a different kind of war, but the, the main attempt was to try and derail the whole war effort. Yes, and we'll be, we're going to go into a quick little song and we'll be right back with you. You're listening to High Kids on 101.9 High FM. That song was Friend Like Me from Aladdin. My name is Lexi Abramson and this is Chai Kid and this is the Chai Kid Show. My guest in studio is Rene Pozniak. Well no, I can't get Pozniak. Pozniak. And Arlene Show from the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Centre. 
So let's go back into your questions. And what is Holocaust denial? So Holocaust denial, I think some people would even say, is probably the modern form of anti-Semitism. It's an attempt to try and deny. You can't deny that the Holocaust happened because there's a lot of evidence. But it's the extent to which they claim it happened, the Jews. Uh, people that are Holocaust deniers are usually very anti-Semitic people. Holocaust denial is something that is illegal and outlawed in many, many countries. Um, and basically, if, if you go to the camps, they're, they're all there. The remnants of the six camps, or well, some of them were totally destroyed, but there is stuff there. It's, it's impossible to deny that the Holocaust happened. I think that the, the line that some of them take is that it was the Second World War. And in a war, people die. Lots of people die. And that, that there was nothing specific about the Jews. But we know that there's too much evidence. Holocaust denial is completely discredited. And yet there's still people that sprout it everywhere. Why do you think they deny it? Because I think that they deny it because they don't want to actually hear that it was true. Probably, I think probably people are, are, don't want to acknowledge, maybe even the German nation, don't want to acknowledge that something like this could happen, that man could do something like this to man. I think that also they believe that it's a, a Jewish conspiracy so that they could get support for the establishment of the State of Israel possibly and to, to, to demand reparations from Germany, huge sums of money, um, none of which is true. None of which, okay. And what were the... Nuremberg trials so at the end of the war after liberation um, there was a decision made to um, prosecute the Nazi war criminals the main people that were involved and so trials took place at Nuremberg in Germany hence it was called the Nuremberg trials and it was a trial of many um, Nazi high-ranking Nazi officials so they got Nazis and um, what did they ask them um, so it would be a whole legal procedure and a whole legal process oh, okay. where they would find out and pr- try to prove whether they were guilty or innocent and then sentence them accordingly. Okay. So I think that what, what's particularly interesting about the Nuremberg trials is that it's the first time there was a trial that looked at um, crimes against humanity. There had never been a trial where people were put on trial for crimes against a whole people. So that, I think, was one of the fascinations of the Nuremberg Trials. Wow. And where was the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center established? And whose idea was it to establish the center? So there are, we have two sister centers, one in Cape Town and one in Durban. But we never had a, a Holocaust center in Johannesburg. So the decision was taken to build a center here in Johannesburg um, under the auspices of our director, Tully Nates, who was largely responsible for the building of the center. Um, Gerald Leisner helped her significantly in doing the fundraising for it, and Louis Levine was the architect of the center. We um, started building the center in 2012, but it was only really completed last year when we moved into the actual building itself, although the permanent exhibitions are not yet ready. Yes. And why was the center established in Johannesburg? What does it aim to do? So our centre is not just a museum for people to visit. It's a it's really a centre of learning. There are many activities that take place there all the time. It's a centre of memory, of keeping memory alive. And our centre is dedicated to teaching about the Holocaust and the Rwandan genocide. 
and we felt that there was a necessity to have a centre like this in Johannesburg because, as I said, we have the ones in Cape Town and Durban. We needed to have a centre here too. It was very relevant to have one. And can you tell us about the Holocaust section of the centre? So our centre is going to have two permanent exhibitions, as I said. The one is going to be on Rwanda and the other one is going to be on Holocaust. Our permanent exhibitions aren't ready yet, but we do have a temporary version of the permanent exhibition on both, on the Holocaust and on Rwanda. Um, We have had... 21 specifically made videos made for our centre where we've um, got survivors' testimonies. We will have lots of artefacts that that have been donated to us when it opens, when the permanent exhibition opens next year. And the architect has put a lot of symbolism and meaning into the actual building itself, um, which relates to the Holocaust and to the Rwandan genocide. Wow. And what does the genocide section exhibit? Sorry, exhibit. I can't talk today. I don't know why. You're doing very well. (laughs) Thank you. Is it only about the? Okay, I can't say this. Rwandan genocide. Did I get that? You did. That was right. Yes. So, so it isn't only about the Rwandan genocide. As I said, it's Holocaust and Rwandan genocide. But we also make reference to. General human rights abuses. We talk about, um, we make links to South Africa and our apartheid past. And we also make references to other genocides as well. We talk about the Namibian genocide and the Armenian genocide in the exhibition as well. And can you tell us um, more about genocide and the genocide in Rwanda? So in 1994, April 1994 in South Africa, South Africa was all consumed. We were having our first democratic elections. Everyone was very excited. And generally the world's attention was on South Africa and what was unfolding here. Um, What was happening on the same continent, less than three and a half hours away by plane in Rwanda, was that a genocide was occurring in in Rwanda. Um, The genocide occurred between two different groups, the Hutu and the Tutsi. The Tutsi were targeted by the Hutu, and within a 100 days, approximately a million Tutsi and moderate Hutu were targeted and murdered. Wow. And who can, who can come and visit the centre? Can a school children come? And if so, from what age? Anybody can come to the centre. Everybody is welcome. We would love to, to host as many, many people as possible. Um, school children do already come. We have groups. I don't know if there's a minimum age. I, I think it would need to be appropriate. I, I wouldn't think that a very young child wanted to come and look at um, exhibitions on, on genocide or, or the Holocaust. But uh, certainly in the like middle school, school groups start from grade six generally. Those yeah. are the programs that we would start with. Uh, we have a lot of visitors coming from all sorts of schools because, as we said earlier, it's part of the curriculum in grade nine that schools across the board have to learn 15 hours of Holocaust education. So we do programs to support the curriculum and school. we have lots of schools coming to visit for that. Um, but the centre's open and we have a lot of events all the time, very interesting speakers. We have historians, we have movies, we have um, art exhibitions and installations. Seminars. Workshops. workshops. So it's a very, very busy center. And um, at the moment, we aren't open on the weekends to the public yet, but we will be. A coffee shop is opening shortly. Um, so people are welcome to come and have coffee and a gift store there. And it's a very welcoming center. It's a kind of center where we encourage people to come. And they don't just come for one visit. They come again and again because there is so much to offer. 
There's also a resource center. So if somebody wants to come and do some research oh. uh, on anything, they, they're very welcome to That's come really as well. Cool. And do you have any Holocaust or Rwanda genocide survivors who work or volunteer at the center? We do. We have, uh, we actually have a Rwandan gentleman who's on our permanent staff and we have, uh, Rwandan survivors that volunteer and we, and a, a lot of our Holocaust survivors help us in the schools. They speak, they explain what, what they went through and, uh, special people that we love having around us. Wow. We also run various um, groups for the survivors, Rwandan survivors and Holocaust survivors, support groups and group of interest where they come to the center. And it's a welcoming place for them. We have one more question for you guys. Are you ready? Yep. Are you ready? (laughs) (laughs) How do we keep the Holocaust memory alive? And what is your message to children and future generations? Um, first of all, I think keeping the Holocaust alive is a very, very important job that really uh, belongs to all of us. Um, I think that the main aim, first of all, is to try and ensure that something like this doesn't happen again. And you need to know about it in order to try and avoid it. Unfortunately, uh, never again. That phrase that came out very shortly after the Holocaust doesn't seem to have been very successful. If you look around the world today, there's lots of um, people living in very miserable situations. Um, we keep, we, we, there are various ways. I think that the schools have curriculum. There is a national curriculum for grade nines. And uh, there are tours that go to Poland where you can physically go and see uh, the remnants of what happened there and the, the vast Jewish culture that was lost. Um, so there, there's many ways of keeping it alive. I think it gets more challenging as you move further away from the incident. Um, just makes the job more challenging, but just as important. We also have another program which might be of interest to young children at the moment to keep the memory alive, and we have a program called the Twinning Program. So what we do there is we try and twin a a child of bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah age with a child who perished in the Holocaust who never had the opportunity of having this bar or bat mitzvah. And we give suggested ways they can go about doing this twinning program. We make a connection with the child, the bar or bat mitzvah child with their first name or their Hebrew name or the place of origin of their family so that there's some personal connection with them and then try to keep the memory of one child alive through this program. Well, my bat mitzvah is coming up soon, so I can get a toy maybe. We would love to do that for you. And we'll give you a whole <laughs> lot of suggested ways that you can go about remembering your twin. And it just makes the, this, the whole bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah ceremony that much more meaningful, we feel, for children your age as well. Yes. But also we think that an, imp- an important lesson or message that you were asking about for future generations, as Renee said, is we have to learn lessons from this past. We have to learn lessons from the history to ensure it doesn't happen. And one of our key um, programs and one of our focuses when we, do, when we teach um, the Holocaust is to look at various roles that people took during that time. Were people bystanders? Were they perpetrators? Or did they try and help in some way? Did they become an activist? And we get children to examine their own roles in their lives today to see if they could actually make a move from being a bystander to becoming an activist. And we feel that these are important lessons that can be learned from this period of history. Wow. 
Thank you, guys. For, thank you for coming on Chai Kids and teaching us more about the awesome work you do. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for, thank having, you for us. having us. And we would like to welcome you today, personally, one day. Thank you. I can see what's happening.